if you would just uh, read this with me as our opening prayer. Put your hearts set toward the Lord. Hear what he has to say to us this morning. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set thy glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Father, I just pray that you would still our hearts, clear our minds, so that we might focus on how excellent thy name is this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now you can go to John 12, and we'll be looking at verses 20 to 36 this morning. The Lord's public ministry had just about reached its end at this point in our study of his earthly visitation. In fact, we know less than one week remains until he will be crucified. Now, in this morning's lesson, we're going to continue our look at the events which occurred on Monday of the Lord's Passion Week following his two symbolic acts of judgment, the cursing of the fruitless fig tree was the first one, and then the cleansing of the filthy temple. Dr. A.T. Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels, which puts all four of the Gospels into chronological order, and that's the book I've been using so that I know what step comes next, tells us that the next event is to be found in John 12, verses 20 to 50, which contains the Lord's last public appeal to come to him in belief. From here on in, the Lord will be devoting what little time he has left primarily to his own 12 men. Yes, the wicked, willfully unbelieving leadership of the nation of Israel had now officially rejected him, but it was still not too late for individuals to come to him in faith and receive the eternal life which he alone has to offer. Now, because these verses... John 12, verses 20 to 50, because these verses do contain for us the Lord's last public testimony regarding himself and his offer of eternal life, we want to consider them very carefully. Therefore, this is going to be another two-part study. Uh, This morning, we will be discussing John 12, verses 20 to 36 which we're going to divide into three main sections. We'll be looking at the visit from some Greeks, visit of Greeks, the voice of God, and then the vacating of grace. 
And next time we meet, we'll be looking at the last verses, verses 37 to 50. And our title, as you can see, for this two-part study is The Lord's Last Public Appeal. So let's move on right now and look at the first section, The Visit of Greeks. In our consideration of this first main division, we're going to begin by looking at an interesting and significant request made by some Greeks in verses 20 to 22, and then we're going to discuss the Lord's reply to that request, and that's found in verses 23 to 27. So let's open up by looking at the request itself, verses 20 to 23. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. What feast is that, by the way? Passover, correct. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now, before we talk about these Greeks... And I love this lesson, you know, because I happen to be Greek, and I love to see Greeks desiring to see Jesus. But but before we talk about them and their request, I'd like to point out something significant here in the order of things as it has been revealed to us in our chronological study. And again, this is one of those things that you would miss if you were not doing a, a, a study chronologically, like we have been doing. In John chapter 11... Remember, Jesus was presented to us in that chapter as the Son of God, as he himself stated in verse 4, which I have up here, when he said to his men regarding Lazarus, when he got word that Lazarus was really sick, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God, he referred to himself that way, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And then, of course, he proved that he indeed was the Son of God by raising Lazarus of Bethany from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. And then, during the Lord's official entry into Jerusalem as her Messiah on Palm Sunday, we heard Hosanna praises of acknowledgement from the vast multitudes of the people that Jesus was who? The son of who? Son of David. Okay? So that came next chronologically. We had the Son of God in John chapter 11. Then when he came in on Palm Sunday, it was the Son of David. David. And now what comes before us in John chapter 12 particularly concerns Jesus in his role as the Son of Man. You see, as the Son of David, he is only related to Israel as her promised Messiah, her promised king who would sit on David's throne. But in his son of man title, which we see in John 12, 23, he is related to all men. He's the son of Adam. He's related to Jew and Gentile. It tells us in Daniel 7, 14, that as the son of man, he came comes to the ancient of days. And the ancient of days is who? God Almighty comes to the Ancient of Days to receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. So in his Son of Man title, he relates to everybody, the whole world, Jew and Gentile. And that's how we see him in this chapter that we're looking at this morning. So in perfect keeping with this sequence... 
the Son of God, John eleven four, who came first to Israel as the Son of David, Matthew twenty one nine, and then to the Gentiles as the Son of Man, which we see today. In, the, in perfect keeping with this sequence, our present passage speaks of Greeks, and Greeks are what Jew or Gentile? Gentile speaks of Greeks who are seeking Jesus. And notice that these, well, you don't notice it yet because I haven't read about it. Oh, yes, I did. Um, notice in verse um, 22, 21 that they didn't ask, uh, sir, we would see the Christ, did they? They didn't ask to see the Messiah because that would be a request only appropriate for a Jew. So instead they ask what? Sir, we would see Jesus. Jesus. That's his universal name and it means savior and that's again in perfect keeping with the whole theme of the book of john which is that jesus is the savior of the whole world not merely the redeemer of israel it's in the book of john that we were given the that we are given the um, precious gospel message in a single verse you could say in a nutshell what verse does that happen to be everybody in here knows it in the book of John. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right. Okay, and then back in John chapter 4, we heard the first people declared Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And this was stated by the people of Sychar, the little village of Sychar, who were not Jews. They were Samaritans. They were the very first people to ever declare that Jesus was the Savior of the whole world. And then it was in John chapter 6 that we heard the Lord declare himself to be the true bread or the true manna of God which came down from heaven to give life unto the world, the whole world. Verse 33. And then in John eight twelve, he further stated that he is the light of the light of the world, not just the light of the Jews. And in chapter 10, I'm just going right through all the chapters in John. In John chapter 10, which we could call the Good Shepherd chapter, he told his Jewish listeners that he had other sheep, remember, that he must bring into the fold. Who did those other sheep represent? Gentiles. And in chapter 11, God even used that wicked high priest Caiaphas to prophetically proclaim that the death of Jesus would not just be for the nation of Israel, but it would be so that God could gather together all of his children who were scattered abroad. Isn't that amazing? Coming from the lips of such a wicked, uh, ungodly man that he should prophesy about all God's children coming to Jesus from all around the world. The worldwide emphasis, then, of John's gospel is just too obvious to miss. And here now, in our current passage, we see it stressed again by, the way, by way of these Greeks who come desiring to see Jesus. And John, by the way, is the only one of the four gospel writers who tells us about these certain Greeks. If he hadn't told us, we wouldn't know. And, I, you know, being of Greek origin, I'm really glad that he told us about them. It encourages me a little bit. During the same day in which Jesus had exerted his authority over the temple by cleansing it, 
Philip, who was one of the twelve apostles, was approached by, it says, certain Greeks, who very politely asked him if they could see Jesus. Now, these men, it tells us in verse 20, had come to Jerusalem in order to worship. You notice that? To worship at the feast. They were not, these men were not heathen Greeks. And they were not just Greek-speaking Jews. They were actually Greek-speaking Greeks. <laughs> they were Greek-speaking Gentiles, representatives of the vast Gentile world which lay beyond Palestine. Now, because these Greeks came to Jerusalem for the Passover in order to worship, we know for a fact that they were not heathens, you know, who believed in the, the vast pantheon of Greek mythological gods and goddesses. They were Gentile proselytes to Judaism. They were God-fearing Gentiles who, although they had probably not accepted the, the Jewish rite of circumcision, yet they did adhere to the scripture and to worship of Jehovah God. These men were some of the men that were allowed into the outer court of the temple, which was known as the what? Court of the Gentiles. They were allowed there, but they could go no further. And we know from our discussion last week that this was the area of the temple which Jesus, in his righteous indignation, had cleansed of all the greedy money changers and the merchants who had robbed such men as these Greeks, rather than encourage them, as they should have been doing, about the reality of their faith. Very possibly, these Greeks could have been firsthand eyewitnesses of the Lord's amazing authority and fury, which had sent all of those wicked extortioners flying in every direction. This is still the same day. This is Monday afternoon. So very likely those Greeks had been in the court of the Gentiles and had seen this happen. And they had also very likely the day before witnessed or at least heard about Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on the back of an ass's colt and had perhaps seen firsthand or at least heard about his many healings of the lame and the blind which he had performed Sunday afternoon in the temple. And they probably had also heard of his raising of Lazarus from the dead. And perhaps like some other wise men who were also Gentiles who had desired to see Jesus at the beginning of his life, perhaps these Greek men, Gentiles, who desired to see Jesus at the end of his life, perhaps they were able to consider the scripture more objectively than the Jews and were more readily able to discern that this Jesus, this man called Jesus, was fulfilling so many of the messianic prophecies. They, you see, they didn't have to deal with such stumbling blocks as their own prejudices against Galileans or Nazarenes, people from Nazareth. And they didn't need to concern themselves 
about the attitudes and the prejudices of the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. Nor would it mean the end of their social and spiritual lives if they were desynagogued for believing in Jesus. So you see, they didn't have all those stumbling blocks. They were able to see really with more pure eyes, hey, this fella is fulfilling messianic prophecy. He must be the one that God said he would send. Just like I think the wise men from the east were able to read the book of Daniel and and the other prophecies and put it all together and see what the Jews couldn't see because they were so blinded by their own preconceived ideas and by their own prejudices. It's interesting in connection with what the Pharisees had just complained about in verse 19. Look at verse 19. It's interesting in light of that that these seeking Greeks appear on the scene in verse 20. In verse 19, remember the envious and worried Pharisees had just proclaimed to one another. They said, you know, look, all that we've been trying to do has come to no good. And then they said, behold, the world is gone after him. Right there in verse 19. And now here, the very next verse... The Holy Spirit inspired John to write about these certain Greeks who desired him, desired Jesus, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. These Greeks were sort of a first fruit of a great coming Gentile harvest of which you and I are a part. They were the first of Caiaphas's prediction regarding the gathering together into one the children of God that were scattered abroad. They were the first of those other sheep that the good shepherd would also bring into his fold. And they were evidence of the fact that the fields were indeed white unto harvest. Verse 21 tells us that these men, and we don't know how many of them there were, could have even been men and women. Could have been some women. Um, In one of these pictures, you'll see a woman in there. She looks a lot like me. If you look at the profile, (laughs) you'll see her coming up. But it could have been men and women, you know, Greeks coming to see Jesus. We don't know how many of them there were, and I think that's interesting because we don't know how many wise men there were either that came to see Jesus early in his life when he was a small child. These men, it says, came to Philip, who was of Bethsaida in Galilee, and they made the request to him. Why Philip? Well, perhaps they came to Philip because they previously had known him. They could have been Syrophoenician Greeks, as the woman back in Mark 7.26 was. She was the woman who came to Jesus on behalf of her demon-possessed daughter. Bethsaida was a city of Galilee which was right, I didn't bring a map, I should have, right on the border of Syrophoenicia. So they could have known Philip. Or perhaps they sought out Philip because he had a more purely Greek name than any of the other disciples, which might indicate in their thinking that he could be, you know, he could have some Greek blood mixed in or something. Maybe he would be more compassionate toward anyone from a Hellenic ancestry. Or perhaps Philip was even able to speak Greek. Maybe they came to him because he knew their mother tongue and could speak to them in Greek. We don't know. These are all speculations. But they did go to Philip, and he does have a Greek name. These men, we might also notice, 
were very polite. Greek people are very polite, aren't they? (laughs) They took a lowly place by first approaching Philip rather than just, you know, rushing right up to Jesus themselves. They knew their position, just like the woman who said, you know, even the dogs get the crumbs. They did it the right way. It's to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And they were very humble in their approach by just going through the proper channel, going to one of his apostles first. Now, the Greek word for desired in verse 21 literally means that they kept desiring. They kept beseeching Philip. They didn't give up easily. They kept at it. They wanted to see Jesus. And they addressed him, notice, very politely as sir, when they're talking to Philip. And their request is literally sir, if you want to take it literally the way the Greek sees it. And this is important, we'll see. Sir, Jesus, we desire to see. Sir, Jesus, we desire to see. What was it that the Jews were always asking to see? This is an interesting contrast, too. We would see a sign, right? And we have that all over the place. Matthew 12, 38 is one example. But these Gentiles have it right, don't they? They say, sir, we would see Jesus. And isn't it interesting that at the very same time that the religious leaders of Israel were desiring to kill Jesus, these Gentiles were desiring to see him. No wonder the church is made up primarily of Gentiles. Now, the reason I pointed out about that word desire, back in Haggai 2.7, and Haggai is one of the minor prophets, and he's very difficult to find. He's between the two Z's, if you want to remember it that way. He's between Zephaniah and Zechariah, and he's very thin. I think it's only two or three chapters in Haggai. (laughs) But he's in there. And in Haggai 2.7, he predicted, and this is a messianic prophecy, that the desire of all nations shall come. That, as I said, was a messianic prophecy. It was saying that the Messiah is the desire, the one, the desired one, whom all nations would desire to come to, people from all nations. So it's not merely coincidence that these Greeks desired, and that same word was used, that they desired to see Jesus. It was, again, a fulfillment of prophecy. And it was a fulfillment of all that was to come in these some 2,000 years now of the church age. When Jesus now received word from Philip and Andrew that these Greeks desired to see him, he recognized in them the forerunners of a vast throng of Gentiles who would come to him from all nations and tribes and kindreds of the world. Their interest in him, therefore, drew from his lips some very great spiritual truths, which were given in a message which turns out to be his final public appeal to come to him for salvation. Now, it tells us that Philip went and told Andrew, 
about the request of these Greeks. Now why, we might wonder, why did Philip not immediately go to Jesus with their request? And why did the Greeks have to keep asking him before he finally went to consult Andrew about this particular situation? Was this because Philip did not have a true evangelistic zeal for souls, especially, you know, Gentile souls? I don't really think that was the case here. In fact, the very first time that we ever meet Philip in the scripture, we find that no sooner had he become a follower of Christ than he ran to find who? You remember? No, that was Andrew. Nathaniel, right, there it is up there. <laughs> he ran to find Nathaniel and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth. So immediately after he, you know, basically got saved, he ran to tell somebody else. So I don't think it's because he didn't have an evangelistic spirit. Probably the reason for Philip's delay and his need to consult with Andrew is found in Matthew 10. Verses 5 and 6, there, if you remember, in the ordination sermon, remember we spent two or three weeks going over the ordination sermon, the Lord gave to uh, his 12 men, before he sent them out in pairs to go on their first missionary journey without him, he gave to them these specific instructions. He said, go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Philip, would ha he'd have that thought in his mind, plus he would also remember the Lord's words, which he spoke to that Canaanite woman, when he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then, on further reflection, I'm going through Philip's mind now, he would also remember the Lord's kindness to that woman because he did grant to her her request to deliver her daughter from the demon inside of her, as well as he also commended her for her great faith. Remember? And Philip would probably also remember the Lord's kindness to the Roman centurion, whose servant he also healed because of the man's great faith. Only two times in the Lord's whole ministry that he commended people for their great faith, and they were both Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? And Philip would also remember how the whole Samaritan village of Sychar was converted. Almost everybody in that village was converted. So... All these things, you know, are kind of confusing. What should he do? So he goes to Andrew to seek his counsel rather than just sending the Greeks away altogether. Now, Andrew seems to immediately have taken the lead. I mean, after all, he was Peter's brother. So he did have some of that in him. And apparently they, he just said, well, let's just go and take this situation directly to Jesus and let him decide about what he wants to do with it. Probably, after all that had just occurred the day before with the Lord's direct fulfilling of Zechariah 9.9 coming into the city on the Asses um, colt and all the Hosanna praises from the vast multitudes and then that morning's, Monday morning's cleansing of the temple, probably at this point the hopes of these 
disciples, these apostles, were at their highest point. To them, it probably did appear that all the world was about to go after Jesus. Wasn't this request from these Greeks now a further indication that he was about to establish his kingdom and become a light to lighten the Gentiles as well as the glory of his people Israel? So they probably saw this as a fulfillment of prophecy that he was finally, you know, even the Gentiles are starting to come to him. Must be just about time to set up the kingdom. So Philip and Andrew together take the request of these Greeks to Jesus and they received a specific reply from him. But before we take a look at that reply... Let me just say that as far as we can determine from the scripture, it appears that the request of these Greeks was never um, granted. You know, they wanted to see Jesus. Now, they didn't want to just see him with their eyes. They'd probably already seen him. They wanted to have an interview with him. They wanted to have a time of quiet conversation with him. We need to realize that while Jesus was in his physical body, he was the king of the Jews. He was the Jewish Messiah who was, was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was God's design. That was God's plan to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. The Jews were to believe in him in this capacity as their Messiah. They were to know him by his words and by his works and by his fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecy. However, for the Gentiles, Christ had to die, be buried, and then raised from the dead. You see, to the Gentiles, he was not offered as the seed of David. To the Gentiles, he was offered as the seed of Abraham through whom all the world was to be blessed. Remember that promise God had given to Abraham. By not offering these Greeks their desired interview with him, Jesus was teaching them that salvation was not through his perfect obedience to the law or his wondrous messianic miracles and fulfillments, but that it was by faith in him as the crucified one. And that's why we'll see in his reply he talks so much about his upcoming crucifixion. They must learn to look upon him as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world and not as the Messiah of Israel. And that's what the message he relayed to them through Philip and Andrew conveys. So we're going to move on in our outline, wherever it is buried down in this pile here. We're going to move on to the second part, the reply. Now the Lord's reply to to the Greeks and really to all the world, which he delivered to Philip and Andrew and probably all the other disciples standing around at this time heard what he said. Plus, we'll find out in verse 29 that he's not just speaking to Philip and Andrew and the other disciples, but there's a whole crowd of people standing around. So he's probably in the temple, and there's probably just a vast multitude of people there. And they all hear this reply. Now, this reply can essentially be divided into three parts. And they are the Lord's death, which we're going to look at first, the Lord's death, the Lord's devoted, his servants, and then the Lord's distress. So let's begin by looking at the Lord's death in verses 23 and 24. It says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, for the very first time, 
Jesus declared that his hour had come. Back in John 2, 5, at a wedding in Cana, very first miracle he ever performed, he had said, remember, to his mother, mine hour is not yet come. And then in John 7, 30, in the middle of his three years of public ministry, John recorded that no man could lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. But now, and there's many times through the Gospels we've heard that. His hour, his time had not yet come. They wanted to take him, but they couldn't because it wasn't time. But now, for the very first time, Jesus announces that his hour had arrived. This, he said, was the hour when the Son of Man was to be what? What does it say there in verse 23? Son of Man was to be glorified. And there's really almost a double meaning in those words. One meaning could very well be that the hour had arrived when the Son of Man was to be glorified by receiving the worship of Gentiles. The hour was ripe for God's promise to Abraham to be fulfilled. And that promise, we know, was that through him, through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But... That's one meaning. But when we link this verse, verse 23, to the one that follows it about the corn of wheat having to die first, it's equally clear that the Lord was speaking of his hour, the hour of his approaching death. So in this, in the fact that he is speaking of his approaching death, we have a forecast. This is forecast number 31 in our study. Notice that instead of saying, as we would expect Jesus to say, instead of saying that the hour had come when the Son of Man was to be crucified, instead he said that the hour had come when he was to be glorified. What was he looking ahead to? Absolutely. He saw beyond the cross to the glory which lay before him. In trying to get his listeners to understand and believe that the pathway to glory lay by way of the cross, Jesus taught them once again, as he did so many times, with an illustration from nature. He knew that they would very readily understand being primarily an agricultural people. And he used something from the nature he had himself created to point to himself. He said, verily, verily, and what does that always tell us? about to say something very important. It means sort of um, of a truth, of a truth. Listen up. What's coming next is very important. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus used the illustration of a seed to speak of the great spiritual truth that there cannot be glory without suffering, that there can be no fruitful life without death, there can be no victory without submission. The whole purpose of the cross, you see, is stamped upon the face of his creation. Every seed which is ever sown into the ground to produce a harvest is actually a prediction and a reminder of the fact that the giver of life himself must die and did die to bring forth a harvest. 
everybody knows, I think everybody in this room knows that farming and gardening is founded upon the basic principle that a seed, and the Greek word is kokos, isn't that funny? Almost like Coca-Cola, kokos, the seed corn of wheat, must be sown into the ground. The seed must be put into the ground for its germ of life to reproduce itself. I used up here, a, a pine, we have pine trees all over our yard, so I found a picture of a little pine tree seed buried down in the ground. The seed only reproduces itself when it is buried and dies. And this death is not really in the sense of um, absolute perishing, is it? I mean, it just doesn't go into extinction. It doesn't cease to exist when it's put into the ground. But it's in the, the death is in the sense of decaying, shedding its outer husk. You know, kind of like we have to shed our, uh, the shells that we live in, our bodies, so that the imprisoned life within it can be set free to multiply itself. But if it's left alone... If you just take a little uh, pine tree seed and you don't, you don't do anything with it, you leave it alone, you don't bury it so that it can die, it can decay, then what happens to it? It just sits there. It abides alone. It's no good. It continues a solitary existence, and it never reproduces itself. It never multiplies. Jesus was saying that in like manner as a corn of wheat except he die, he could not reproduce his life in others, such as these seeking Greeks. Except he die, the spiritual germ of his divine humanity would remain alone, totally inefficient and unproductive among the Gentiles as well as among the Jews. If he never died, he might have just gone on living forever, because the wages of sin is death. He would have never sinned because he's God. He could have just, he could still be walking among us today. But he would never have multiplied. He would have never reproduced any life. We would all be still dead in our sins. But if he were crucified, then a great harvest, as we know, because we're part of it, a great harvest would result from his death. So he said, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruits. Fruit. And the Greeks, you see, the seeking Greeks, were, would possibly be the first part, the first fruit of that great harvest. The death of Christ was really the life of the world. From his prolific seed of life was to spring an enormous harvest of blessings to souls. To wish for him not to die, remember as Peter had? He said, oh Lord, may it not be so, when he first heard about it. And as we know, all the other apostles also wished that he would not die. To wish for that was as foolish as it would be to keep seed corn perpetually locked up in a granary and refuse to ever sow it. That's how foolish it would be. To wish him not to die. Jesus was really, in essence, saying, I am the corn of wheat. I must die, except I die, regardless of what you people think, the ones he was speaking to, regardless of what you apostles think, unless I die, millions of souls will remain unsaved, including your own. 
But if I do die, then there will be a great harvest of fruit. And you know, Christians are just like seeds too. We're small. We're insignificant. We're unnoticed by the world at large out there. Yet, we have powerful, very powerful, reproductive life within us because we have God's life within us. But that life can never be fruitful until we yield ourselves to God and allow him to plant us. We must be buried with Christ, right? As it says in Romans 6, we must be planted, buried with Christ in his death, meaning that we must die to self so that we might live in newness of life, that we might live unto God. Read the chapter, read Romans 6 when you go home today. Romans chapter 6. I think I forced you to do it anyway in your homework, probably. (laughs) That is the only way that we, and you have two weeks to do your homework. The next two lessons you'll have two weeks, so no excuses at all for not doing. That's the only way that we can have a fruitful life. When we die with Christ, die to self with Christ, and are born again in newness of life, in God's life. That way we can have a fruitful life. And this is what Jesus challenged his listeners with in now the next two verses. So let's look at verses 25 and 26, the Lord's devoted He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. The great Christian paradox that the Lord spoke in verse 25, which is that the one who loves his life will lose it, while the one who hates his life will keep it, is one of the most frequently recorded sayings of his in the Gospels. We see it over and over and over again. I give you some of the scripture references, I think, in your notes. But its repetition alone tells us how important that this paradox is. And the paradox is that death is the pathway to life. Death is the pathway to life. He that loves his self meaning his psyche, and I looked it up, and that is the Greek word used there for life, psyche, meaning the immaterial, intellectual, soul nature of man. He that loves his psyche, his self, to the degree that he seeks to preserve it in preference to walking in the way of obedience to Christ, will ultimately lose what he so desperately sought to keep. Yet, the one who hates his life, his psyche, in this world, and now hate here is used in a comparative sense to how much the worldling loves his life. The one who hates his life in comparison to that one is the one who is ready and willing to give up his psyche and his physical life even, if necessary, for Christ's sake. And he's the one who's willing to bury his love of this world with all of its pleasures and its riches and its honors and its benefits. He's willing to bury all that for the sake of following Christ. This devoted servant will be the one who will reap, in the long run, he will reap a far better harvest because he is the one who gains eternal life. 
like Jesus Christ himself, Christians need to understand that they too must make up their minds to be willing to sacrifice and die to the world if they hope to gain a harvest of glory in the world to come. Eternal life must always be the great end to which Christians are focused. We should see everything in this life in light of eternity. This is what keeps our priorities in order. I think the problem with much of Christianity today is that there are really far too few Christians who keep their eyes focused on eternity. Too many are short-sighted. Too many see only this life. And they're too comfortable in this world, and they don't wish to sacrifice their present pleasures and their present comforts for future gain, which they can't immediately experience. You know, this is the gotta-have-it-now world we live in. You know, fast food and microwave ovens and, you know, instant television. We have to have it now, and we can't put off having our pleasure for the future. We have to experience it now. Eternal loss or eternal gain in the realms of rewards and honors are subjects I think most Christians just rarely think about because they really don't want to think about them. They'd rather enjoy the present, the now, the creature comforts. So in verse 25, the Lord spoke a great Christian paradox, but in verse 26, he gives us a great Christian principle. We have a paradox and a principle. He said that any man who desired to serve him, like these Greeks probably wanted to do, must be prepared to follow him along the same road that he was going. This is sorrow and a road of suffering, with glory only at the end. He must not look for the good things of this world. He must not look for the crowns and the thrones and the honors and the kingdoms and the riches and the dignity and the wealth in this life, but rather, just like his master, the one who's going to serve him must bear his own cross. Believers, you and I, hopefully everybody in here is a believer, believers are heirs of God. They are joint heirs with Christ. And that means that as he suffered, they too must expect to suffer in this world. However, he also went on in this verse to include some great encouragements to those who would follow him. You know, he's not just going to say, follow me and have nothing but pain and agony forever and ever and ever. There are definitely some rewards to following him. If verse 25 was given to serve as a warning, this verse, verse 26, was obviously given as an encouragement because he promised his servants, his followers, his disciples, that they shall not ever be parted from him. He said, where I am, there shall also my servant be. Where Christ is, in other words, whether it's in heaven or whether it's here on on earth for a thousand years, they, his servants, will be with him. What's that verse that says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels and principalities, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38. Not only that, but he further promised that they will be honored by his father. He said, if any man serve me, him will my father honor. To those who love and serve Christ, the father will give such honor 
as we can't even imagine, as I have not seen nor ear heard. They may not receive the honor and the recognition and the glory of men in this world, but the honor that they will one day receive from God the Father for their service and their faithfulness and their dedication to his Son will more than compensate for our lack of recognition down here. Okay, we're going to move on now to the Lord's distress in verse 27. Just one verse there. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. Having just spoken in these previous verses about his approaching death, the Lord now in contemplation of all that he would soon be enduring, experienced, it seems like here, a, a surge of emotion which drove him to his father in prayer. And this is prayer number seven in our study. Prayer, you know, is an attitude of total dependence on God. Jesus entered into his death in full, total dependence on his father. And his prayer, I think here, reveals something of his inward suffering. He did finish the prayer in the beginning of verse 28. Let me finish reading that. He says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. And he says, Father, glorify thy name. Now, I don't believe that it was the physical pain of the cross which caused this anticipatory anguish, which we see here. I think that it was the prospect of knowing that he was to be made sin for us, that he was to be made a curse for us and therefore suffer the righteous wrath of his sin-hating father i think that's what he's really anguishing over the fact that his father would have to turn his back from him while he was on the cross nevertheless what did he do he bowed his will to the father's will and he said what shall i say shall i say father save me from this hour For this cause came I into this hour. Came I into this hour, that's right. In other words, he prayed, we could say it like this. What should I say? Should I say, Father, save me from enduring this hour for which I came into the world to begin with? You know, the answer is obvious. It's a rhetorical question which expects a negative answer. Of course he wouldn't pray such a thing. Christ would fulfill the purpose for which he came to earth. He would fulfill the Father's plan, and he would obey the Father's will. Now that his hour had come so very close, he refused to pray that his Father would keep him from it. So he looked death square in the eye, looked it straight in the face, and willingly bowed to it, saying, Father, glorify thy name. Jesus wanted his Father to be glorified by his obedience. And this, I think this brief little prayer right here, just one and a half verses, exemplifies for you and I the highest and the greatest thing which we can ever ask God to do. The loftiest reach of the converted will of the believer is to be able to always say, Father, glorify thy name in me. No matter what happens to me, glorify your name in and through me. Do what you will, 
only glorify your name. It's the glory of God, after all, which is the end for which all things were created, isn't it? Okay, we're going to look at the voice of God now and um, look at verses 28 and 29. First part, God speaks out. We're going to look here at uh, God speaks out, Satan cast down, and Christ lifted up. So let's begin by looking at God speaks out, verses 30 and 31. Jesus answered and said, oops, excuse me, 28. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Immediately following Jesus' prayer to his Father to glorify his name, the Scripture tells us a voice of God from heaven spoke and gave his dearly beloved Son a double testimony. His words confirmed that his Son's past life and ministry had already glorified him. He said, I have glorified it. That's past tense. And then he went on to say that his son's future suffering and death would also glorify him. I will glorify it again. See, it's a double testimony. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. God had already been glorified. His name had already been exalted by the life of obedience his son had lived during his 30 years of incarnation. And he would be glorified again. The father would be through his son's obedience on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Now, this is the third time, if you're counting, the third time that we have heard audibly from heaven. The first occasion was when? Right, at the Lord's baptism. And that was at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew 3:17. The voice of God spoke then as Jesus came up from the waters of baptism. Now the second time was when the Lord was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was at the apex of his ministry. We had the beginning and then the middle. Matthew 17:5. The third occasion is here at the end of his public ministry. In fact, it came during his last public appeal, which is what we're looking at, to come to him in faith. And I hardly think that it's coincidence that it came at a time when the Lord was speaking of his hour of crucifixion. If you look ahead at verse 32, when he said that he would be lifted up from the earth in order to draw all men to him. Just another one of those little things that tells us about the inspiration of the Word of God, how perfect it is in every aspect. Three times we hear from up in heaven, and they all have to do with being up. <laughs> the people who stood around the Lord now, listening to his words before this as he was talking, and to his prayer, they heard him audibly pray. Now they heard a loud, audible sound come from the sky, yet they were unable to understand the words. They were unable to understand the message of that sound. They were mystified as to how to explain what had happened. Some thought that it was a natural phenomena, such as a um, thunderclap, while others thought it was a supernatural phenomenon, and they said, well, maybe it's the voice of an angel. But the Lord himself instantly knew. He knew his father's voice. 
and he knew the words of assurance that his father spoke to him. So he explained to the people that it was indeed a voice, not a thunderclap. Furthermore, he explained to them that it was not for his sake, but for their sake that this voice spoke. It was a sign and it was a witness to them. Just one more miraculous public evidence of his divine mission. In that they heard him pray and then heard this mysterious sound from heaven in response to his prayer, they should have been convinced of who he was. If nothing else, they certainly should have been convinced that he was definitely in touch with God. I mean, how would you, how would you react if I was up here and I said, Father, glorify your name in me, and all of a sudden there was this huge booming sound in the sky. You said, boy, she's in, I'm going to give her my prayer request. <laughs> you know, if nothing else, they should have thought he had a real you know, good connection up there with God. And so it was really a further proof of his identity and was therefore for their sakes, not for his so much. And hearing God's voice from heaven certainly should have strengthened the faith of those who already were believers, such as the apostles. Okay, let's look at Satan cast down. I've got to get moving here. Verses 30 and 31. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. I've already covered that, but here, this part. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The hour of the Lord's crucifixion was also to be an hour of judgment for the world. And the prince of this world, who? Satan. Although Christ's death would seem like a victory for the wicked world and for Satan, yet it would really be a judgment for both. On the cross, we know Jesus defeated Satan and his world system. In a sense, the entire world was completely under Satan's dominion until the time of the Lord's redeeming work on the cross was accomplished, was finished. When Christ came, and died for sinners, then Satan's usurped power was finally broken, and he received that deadly blow to his head, as it tells us in Genesis 3.15. And Colossians 2.15 states that the work of Christ on the cross spoiled principalities and powers, and that he, Christ, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. At the cross, the head of the serpent was finally crushed, bruised. Although his casting out, as the Greek verb in verse 31 there denotes, would be a gradual process. Satan's hold over this world, which is through sin and death, was broken at the cross, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, and was therefore that first stage of his being cast out. Stage one, at the cross, okay? The next stage will be when he is cast out from his current access to heaven. You know, right now he can go back and forth, to and fro. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's always up there accusing us, you and I. But who's our advocate? The Lord Jesus Christ. But the second stage of his casting out will be when he is cast from heaven only to remain on earth. And this will be during the time of the tribulation. 
Revelation 12.10, to be specific, is where that second stage is mentioned. The third stage of his casting out will be when he is cast into the bottomless pit. And that's in Revelation 20, verse 3. And the final end of Satan, and everybody can go, hallelujah, finally, will be when he is cast into the eternal lake of fire. And that you can find in Revelation 20.10. And this time he will never, ever be released again. The true Christian, the genuine believing Christian, should always take comfort in the truth that Satan is a vanquished enemy who was stripped of a large part of his power at Christ's first coming. And although he is still free to go to and fro seeking whom he may devour, he will be stripped of all of his dominion over this earth at the Lord's second coming. The comfort now for the Christian is found in 1 John 4, 4, which happens to be what? Everybody knows that verse. Greater is he that is in you, Christ, than he who is in the world, meaning Satan. The Lord's work on the cross was not only the work, the one work which passed judgment on the world and on its evil prince, Satan, but it was also the one work which provided eternal life for all those who would come to Christ. And this is what he speaks of in these last two verses. We're going to look at Christ lifted up, verses 32 and 33. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Now, in this remarkable statement made by the Lord here, verse 32, he plainly, plainly predicted once again his own crucifixion, being lifted up on the cross. So this is forecast number 32 in our study. Actually, the Lord's words here carry, again, a double meaning which makes this forecast, when we think about this, even more beautiful. The basic meaning of the expression lifted up is what? Crucifixion. You can see that in John 3.14 and John 8.28. This is the third time he talks about being lifted up, which is also an interesting study. If I had time, I'd tell you about those three times, but you can look it up in your homework. This was an expression that would clearly be understood by his first century listeners, especially those that had seen so many crucifixions. They knew he was talking about death on a Roman cross when he said being lifted up. However, in the Old Testament scriptures, it was also used to express the idea of glorification. For example, Isaiah 52:13 says, "Behold my servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted." The son of man, God's servant, was going to be glorified by being crucified. In other words, he was going to be lifted up by being lifted up. Isn't that neat? I thought that would make a good poem. I just didn't have time to write one. He would be lifted up by being lifted up, glorified by crucified, by being crucified. We know that the Lord intended this double meaning because of the way he ended the sentence. 32, verse 32, he said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. The phrase which says that he will draw all men unto him looked, you see, at the resurrection glorification side of the cross because a dead Savior could draw no one. 
So we know he had this double meaning in mind. The phrase all men, too, I might throw in, does not mean that all men are universally saved because of Christ's death. Neither does it mean that all people will come to him, will be drawn to him in faith. Rather, it means all people without distinction. In other words, Jew or Gentile, barbarian or civilized, slave or free, male, female, whatever. All men from all nations. And notice that the Lord doesn't force anyone to himself, does he? Always a gentleman. Instead, he draws them to him. The cross would ultimately draw men and women, boys and girls, from all nations and kindreds and tongues to believe in him and to become his disciples. Once crucified, Jesus was to become the great center of attraction and draw men to himself, releasing them by doing so from Satan's power. Now, in this part of his message, Jesus was clearly relaying back to those seeking Greeks that his grace was not to be confined just to Israel. Once again, once they would behold him high and lifted up in his crucifixion and in his subsequent glorification, then they would be given their opportunity to see him. Remember, they desired to see him. Then they would really see him. They would see him for who he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the whole world. They would see him with the eyes of faith as you and I do today. This then was really the Lord's reply to those Greeks. In his death, which he predicted twice in these verses we've been looking at, he would set the stage for both the judgment of this world and the judgment of Satan, and he would provide salvation for all men, regardless of their country, their creed, or their culture. Okay, um, vacating of grace, I think I have just enough time. Our singer is arrived, but look at verses 34 and 35. Bear with me five more minutes, and then you'll get two weeks free of me. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. When the Lord finished speaking, the people who'd been listening to him said, in effect, we have heard that the Old Testament teaches that the Christ, the Messiah, lives forever. How can you proclaim yourself to be the Son of Man which they knew was a title for the Messiah, and he'd already referred to himself as the Son of Man back in verse 23. How can you call yourself the Christ, the Messiah, and yet talk about being lifted up? They knew what he meant, crucifixion. Who is this Son of Man that you're talking about? This isn't the one that our Old Testament scriptures tell us about. They tell us he's eternal. You know, he lives forever. He doesn't die. We don't get it. What are you talking about? It seems here that the people apparently forgot all about 
the other teaching in the Old Testament scriptures, which does announce that the Messiah would die. See, it's why it's always important that you take the whole counsel of God. Sure, there are many verses which speak about the eternality of the Christ because he is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega. But he also had to die as a man, didn't he? And there are verses in the Old Testament Scripture which speak clearly of that. Passages such as Isaiah 53, which speaks of the lamb being led to the slaughter. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 speaks of his pierced hands and feet. Daniel 9.26, remember the 70 weeks prophecy, specifically says that the Messiah will be, what? Cut off. Zechariah 13.7 says that the Lord's shepherd will be smitten. Right. The Lord had never denied throughout his whole ministry, had never denied for a minute the eternality of the Christ. The people here were entirely wrong in their understanding that Christ had to suffer before he reigned. They were wrong in not seeing that his sacrifice as our substitute and as our Passover lamb was the very cornerstone of their whole revealed religion of Judaism. They were wrong in not seeing that the very law of which they claimed to know so much about pointed to his sacrifice as clearly as it did to his eternal glory. But at this point in the Lord's ministry, after so many miracles, this is the end of his ministry, his public ministry, really, right here. After so many miracles and after so many messianic fulfillments had already been given to prove his identity as the Messiah, the Son of Man, it was now, in his thinking, apparently no time to discuss with them their misunderstanding of theology. The Lord merely warned them in their, his reply to what they had said, their confusion. He merely warned them very solemnly of the danger that they were in for allowing their very day of grace to slip by. And as he had done previously, he spoke, he used the illustration of the light of day and spoke of the importance of walking on a journey while there is still light to see by. In his reference here to light, we know, of course, that he spoke of himself. He'd already, remember at the Feast of Tabernacles, he'd already declared himself to be the light of the world, John 8, 12. He was only going to be with them a little while longer, just a few more days, in fact. His day was drawing to a close. His final hour had arrived. He had just announced that it had arrived. The sun was soon to set. To their question, who is this son of man that you're talking about? He said, in effect, he is the light of the world, as I've told you before. However, he told them, he is about to withdraw and leave you in what? Darkness. Therefore, make haste and do not delay to believe on him and become the children of the light while you can. You see, by one simple step of faith, anyone in that crowd that day could have passed out of spiritual darkness and disbelief into the kingdom of light, to, to, into salvation, the light of salvation. For Israel... 
the light was soon to be withdrawn. And then for hundreds, hundreds of years, the Jews as a whole would stumble along in darkness, not knowing where they were going. Tragically, as you and I know, the nation of Israel as a whole did not take heed of this final warning of the Lord's here. And so they stumbled into the disaster of a war with Rome in 70 AD, and they stumbled into the ever-expanding darkness of the Talmud, and they stumbled into one situation of anti-Semitism after another and persecution, and they will continue to stumble like this in their darkened, blinded state until they finally fall right into the arms of the Antichrist himself. Why? Why all of that stumbling? Well, simply because they saw no light in the true light. And thus, as our lesson here concludes, look at the end of verse 36. It says, Jesus departed and did hide himself from them.